The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week's episode is about happy countries. Later on, we'll try to figure out whether Scandinavia really is the most almost perfect place on Earth. But first, let's talk about how we measure a country's happiness. This is Science for the People, and I'm Desiree Shell. I'm joined by Professor John F. Helliwell of the University of British Columbia and the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research and one of the editors of the 2015 World Happiness Report. Welcome, John. Glad to be here. So what is the World Happiness Report, first off? The first World Happiness Report was designed to be a backup to a meeting on April in April of 2012 at the United Nations, and that meeting itself was pursuant to UN resolution introduced by Bhutan in June of 2011 uh, to uh, asking and advising national governments to make happiness and well-being a touchstone of their public policy. So the purpose of the initial report was to bring together the available science and data to provide a scientific underpinning for the meeting in New York. And, and now who produces this report? Because that was the first one, but it's been going on, an, or sorry, semi-annually since then. Well, yes, exactly, semi-annually. Um, the report, with support from a variety of institutions, I think there's one national government that supports it, but mainly it's from the United Nations, uh, well, the Earth Institute of Columbia University, which was the uh, printing agency in the first I- issue. It's not an official UN publication, because that would require going through a very extensive committee refereeing process and is not consistent with the very tight timelines in which it's actually produced. So it's produced under the umbrella of the United Nations Sustainable Development Solutions Network, uh, which is an appropriate uh, group because, of course, uh, happiness is being advocated as one of the key uh, information goals or or information components for the sustainable development goals being discussed now and hopefully decided on in September in Paris to cover to 2015 to 2030. Um, So that's the group, both groups, of course, the Earth Institute and the First Institute and the Sustainable Development Solutions Network. Uh, Jeffrey Sachs plays a central role and both are linked, of course, to the Secretary General's office in the United Nations. So it's a a supportive role. The uh, people who actually write the chapters all do so on a voluntary public service basis. Uh, and then it's up to us to uh, bring them together and edit them. And a, a, a really important role, of course, is played by the Gallup organization because it's their data from the, uh, uh, their global poll that uh, provides the primary source, not the only source of information, but a primary source because it's available for up to 160 countries uh, of 1,000 observations a year, now pushing 10 years. And that, of course, is a fundamental asset that uh, uh, we are grateful to be able to use. Now, I, I definitely want to talk about the data, but maybe first off, can, can you define the term happiness for us in this 
context. <laughs> well, exactly. In this context, indeed, there are a variety of ways used by psychologists to uh, measure happiness, and they're related in complex ways, but fortunately, they all tell a consistent story. Not the same story, but a consistent story. So the first thing I'm going to make is a distinction between two ways of using the word happiness. One is, and I do this when I'm giving talks, I will sing a song with them and say, are you happier now than you were five minutes ago? And the point of doing that is that they should, first of all, they understand immediately what I'm asking and they know how to answer it. And I'm asking about the emotion of happiness. What are you feeling right now? So as a feeling and uh, it's clearly an emotional response. Alternatively, I can say, how happy are you with the baggage retrieval system they have at Heathrow? Or alternatively, and more usefully, uh, in the European Social Survey, one of their main questions is, how happy are you with your life as a whole? Now, it's a very different use of the word. You're asking people to make a cognitive judgment about the state of being of themselves in the environment in which they live. And it is that life evaluative sense of the word happy uh, that uh, is the central one. There are several reasons why these life evaluations, and they can take several different forms, all of which we've discovered are roughly equivalent in terms of the emotional, sorry, the intellectual informational content that they bring. One is the cantrell ladder used in the Gallup World Poll. Think of your wife, life, not your wife. Think of your life as a ladder with the lowest rung being zero and the highest being one. How would you rate your life as a whole these days? Another is the basic one now recommended by the OECD as a key question in all national surveys. How satisfied are you with your life as a whole? Same zero to, zero to 10 scale. And the third is the alternative version, how happy are you with your life as a whole? So these are called life evaluations. On the other side of the street, happiness as emotion is uh, coupled with, added to, supported by a variety of other positive emotions that can be asked about. In the Gallup World Poll, they're typically done. Did you feel a, 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 a certain amount of the following emotion yesterday? And those are all called measures of positive affect, and we use them together and separately as do others. And then there are negative affect measures. And of course, they're much well known to doctors and uh, surveyors because they, well, many of them are drawn from a variety of uh, various depression scales that have been u- used by doctors for decades and refined to measure people's negative states of mind. The whole purpose, of course, of the World Happiness Movement and the report is to bring up to parity and, and into a more central position measures of the positive states of people's mind because they carry more information and are even more indicative about how their lives will unfold in the future. So then the report quantifies and compares subjective well-being? Absolutely. Um, In fact, um, it's only if it's a subject of well-being that it because it is after all about your life as a whole. There's no other measure an objective measure, for example, that you could go out and sort of watch them, uh, that would come close to being as encompassing as people's judgments about their uh, life as a whole. Uh, Happiness, like pain, is inherently subjective. So, of course, only a subjective measure can really measure it truly. 
So then how... Your, your dentist wouldn't want to put a, a scan on your nerve and say, my scan says you're showing no pain. Right. He's interested in the pain you feel. Similarly, when we're after people's life evaluations, we're after their life evaluations, not what somebody else thinks it should be. So then you said you use the, the Gallup data for this, but what exactly are you measuring? What are the variables? Well, I've mentioned uh, the classes, their positive affect measures and, and life evaluations. The life evaluation that plays the central role, indeed it, it does provide the stuff for the uh, national rankings, is the so-called Cantrell ladder question. Think of your life as a ladder with the best possible life being a 10 and the worst being a zero. How would you rank your current life today? And that, that, that's the, precisely the answers to those questions. Lots of other people who, who, who construct well-being indicators uh, around the world add together something to do with uh, uh, children's rights and education and health and income and, uh, and then produce the rankings. The trouble with that is, since they're just put together by someone's subjective view of what the relative importance of these things are, you can't attach any statistical power to it. When we're actually getting these measures from people, um, we can use ordinary sampling theory to tell us how good is this likely to be as a measure of what the underlying population average from everybody would be if we had a chance to access it. So hence, when we publish rankings of the countries, they come with their own error measures attached to them. So you can really tell whether a group of countries are effectively tied or whether they're significantly different from one another. And what is the typical sample size? A thousand per year. Uh, and that's a little too small to get a ranking that's very meaningful because uh, you, you, people spend more attention than they should on a particular ranking number for a country. So recognizing that issue that people have, uh, we uh, want a sample size which we found is pretty good in this context of 3,000 typically. So that means for our rankings we use the three most recent years. Um, and uh, initially, for the first report, we used all the years available. And in the second report, when we wanted to also be able to look at change from before the economic crisis to after, we then used the three most current years to give us the current measure and then compared that to what it was for the three years at the beginning before the crisis started. So I should also mention that um, you compare uh, the different countries' scores to dystopia. <laughs> can, can you explain that? Absolutely. Uh, one of the, of course, it, it's all very well to measure happiness, but if you're interested in it from a point of view of people who are designing policies or interested in what they and their own communities could do to make lives better for each other, um, then you want to know what supports high levels of happiness. So that was the primary goal. Um, and so we put together a model based on a variety of sources for the theory um, and the available Gallup and other data that explained these scores in terms of six key variables, which are maybe worthwhile uh, reminding your listeners of. Uh, Gross national product, so that's a standard measure per capita, uh, re real income that is, healthy life expectancy as measured by the World Health Organization, and then several variables that come from the Gallup World Poll itself, 
uh, most important social support, you have someone to count on in times of trouble, uh, then freedom, to what extent do you feel free to make your key life decisions, and then generosity, and uh, this is people's average answers in a country, have you uh, donated uh, uh, to help somebody or a charity over the last 30 days, we adjust that for the level of income when we use it in our analysis, um, and finally a measure of trust, which is very important in supporting well-being, a measure we use is more specific to corruption in business and industry in the country where you live. So then we explain, use those six variables, and then together they explain for the life evaluations, but not for the emotions. It turns out the emotions are not as internationally different as the life evaluations, and they're not as easily explained by these six variables, which is some of the scientific substance for preferring the life evaluations over the emotions to be our central focus. So we take these factors, which then for life evaluations explain three quarters of the changes in uh, over across countries and, and through time. Um, of, uh, so it's the differences we're explaining across countries and through time. Um, we find that we can then explain 75% of those. So then we want to be able to make a picture for each country so the bar shows their total score. And then we want to say, how much of this can we explain by various factors? Well, you have to say compared to whom. So we wanted to have a compared to so that each country's bar would be a positive contribution of why life is better in that country than somewhere else. Well, in order to make all these bars positive, because we want them to add up to the total, uh, we had to invent somebody who was worse than everybody. And the way of being worse than everybody is to have the world's lowest score on each of those six variables. So this doesn't affect the design of the model. The model was already there. We then use the model and say, what would be the score of a country that had the country's, the world's worst score on each of those six? And the model comes back and says, ought to be two. So in fact, we put in two as the score for dystopia. Now it means for every other country, you could take income per capita, for example. You can say income per capita in our country is X. In dystopia, it was Y. So then we gain extra in happiness by what the model tells the coefficient is on income times the difference between our income and dystopia's income. So every country is better off uh, on each of these variables, or at least equally well off if they happen to be a source for one of dystopia's bits. Um, so all these bars are positive, and they add up to, uh, when you add two to it, they add up to the explained difference. And of course, that can be above or below, since the average error in the model is zero. Some countries have a projected uh, happiness that's higher than what the data show, and others are lower. So then we combine the two for dystopia with the residual and make that the right-hand bar. That's a long and complicated explanation, uh, uh, but at least it convinces you that you don't want to live in dystopia. <laughs> You're listening to Science for the People, and I'm here with John F. Helliwell, one of the editors of the 2015 World Happiness Report. Okay, let's, let's make this tangible for people uh, and take a look at this year's report. And since you and I are both in Canada, we will start there. So how are we faring, sir? Canada, uh, now we have three reports. So the, 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 if you like, if, if, if country does consistently in the three reports, then that's more or less where they stand in the, in the league tables. Uh, Canada is always in the middle of the top ten. 
so in the top 10, in fact, if you look at the top 13 countries, um, they've been the same top 13 countries for all three reports. They've changed their places a fair amount. Uh, Canada went from uh, five to six to back to five again, but in fact, this was more because other countries were jumping around than the Canadian score was changing very much. There had been no significant change in the Canadian score over these uh, over these years. Uh, so Canada at the moment is uh, in fifth place. Uh, it's, I, from, as a Canadian, of course, I always try and write the text so that the top countries are always up to Canada, but not including Canada. <laughs> are you trying to reduce your own bias, sir? Uh, well, it's clearly there, uh, but you, you clearly don't want anyone to say, well, you know, they're concentrating only on the countries that include themselves. And so uh, of the three editors, I happen to be in the one that, ha- that has the highest ranking. So yeah, I'm the one who wants to go out of, out of my way to make sure we concentrate on them. So alternatively, of course, we don't want to always concentrate on the top three or four um, because, of course, all all of these things that are important are found in a lot of countries. So one of the concentrations this year was to concentrate on the top ten because the top ten, according to the model, had almost equivalently good conditions. So it was some extra bit of, 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 of pain or pleasure that was happening in the country that made their rankings be, as it were, ten, number one rather than number ten. But they're all, they're all pretty high-ranking countries in the top ten. Going to the top ten, of course, allows us to get out of Northern Europe, where typically the, uh, the top uh, three or four countries always are. Um, but the, the, the ones you add in the top ten beyond the Northern European countries are uh, rather similar countries in some ways, uh, Australia, uh, New Zealand, and Canada. But Canada's always been above both Australia and New Zealand, but uh, very closely so. And why is that? Why are we always so high? Uh, it turns out if you decompose using the model as though it was the measure of truth, and in some sense that's what we do in the absence of a, of a better model, um, is that they're not the best. They're not all the best on anything typically. But the point is, in all of those six aspects of life, they rank well. So uh, that's what you really need. Uh, if you look at the top countries, they all do pretty well on all of the six measures. Um, and so you, you then you don't attribute it to a particular factor. You say basically, in order to be up there, you have to be pretty good on all of those uh, six factors. So life has to be, material circumstances have to be good, health has to be good, social connections have to be good. It has to be a credible, trustworthy society, and generosity uh, is great, and, and it has to be one where people's capacities are developed to an extent that they really feel they have opportunities to make their key life decisions. And most of those results kind of ring true from other experimental evidence we have, so it's not just a, uh, you know, accident. Well, what about the U.S.? I'm, I'm wondering if, because they are, they're, they're not low, low, but they're, you know, they're below the top 10, so maybe... They're high, yes, that's another way of saying that yes. they're high, but exactly. you want to know why, why they are never top 10 material. Yes. Okay, I've got two answers to that. Uh, the one is, I mean, think of Canada, comparing Canada and the United States, which Canadians do, and this is why Canadians are, are surprised to find Canada above the United States in these things, because all, typically all what we hear in the newspapers is Canada lagging the U.S. in productivity and income and work, et cetera, et cetera, because that, that focus on GDP per capita is, is so 
pervasive in uh, what you read in the news that you tend to think that is the definition of a good life. But of those six variables of which I spoke, income per capita is seriously higher in the United States than Canada, about 20% higher in the data we use. Um, but all of the other five variables uh, are higher in Canada than in the United States, um, and often quite significantly so by an amount in total, of course, which uh, very much overpowers the income effect. Uh, so it shows you at once these other variables are important, as well as uh, the Canadian gaps on them um, being collectively bigger than, uh, than the income effect. So it's a nice case study of showing that income is an inadequate measure of the quality of life and that you really have to do look more broadly if you're to ask how well is life going in one country than another. Do you ever have countries debate your findings? Absolutely. <laughs> on, what, on what grounds? <laughs> well, we've had, uh, um, there have been, uh, in fact, in the first report, uh, uh, more than one country objected to the Secretary General uh, officially um, at, at, these, at, at the ranking. And um, uh, as a consequence, of course, it was then made very clear that this was not the official UN publication. And this is where having a degree of this is an expert-delivered, data-supported report that doesn't involve anybody's judgments, that becomes very important. If we put together an index that reflected our weights on the quality quality of life and then was as you like an objective sum of objective indicators then we would countries could say it's your fault but in this case the data are coming directly from the citizens of each country so although there can be questions about the methods and whether they've reached representative samples and so on uh, it's a it's a clean hands report in that sense um, but the Secretary General quite rightly wanted a, a separation uh, between uh, the official UN so that the people, people can object. It's on scientific grounds and it doesn't mean the UN itself has said country X is worse than country Y. So there's been that kind of objection. Of course, we've had other countries that um, uh, simply thought that what was going on in that country was better than the data showed. In a couple of cases, um, and Rwanda is one, uh, the data and the modeling kind of support their view in a sense that Rwanda is a model where the model says that uh, they have had significant improvements in the quality of their life by these six variables. And uh, the, the scores given on the ground have not yet picked up to that level. Uh, so then the, the the, uh, in some sense, the, that objection uh, or set of questions by Rwanda has two answers. One is these, you know, you still are ranking pretty lowly, even though you have made these really important improvements in, in the supports for life in that country. Um, and although the, uh, the scores are rising, they're not yet fully reflective of it. So the countries with, in some sense, the uh, biggest beef in one way are the ones where uh, the, the data are showing them less happy than the, than the underlying framework suggested they might be. There's another set of countries of which the Latin American countries are one where the scores typically come in higher than the model would suggest and then you have to say is this come kind of Latin American boost or, uh, or, 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 or what's going on there. But, but so, typically anybody who has a positive boost doesn't complain about it. I would assume. Uh, but but that's really, that's, uh, that's promising that countries are actually taking this report seriously. Oh, there's no doubt about that. I mean, uh, we 
didn't we really didn't know at the beginning whether it would. In fact, we didn't even know whether anybody would be interested in the meeting at the UN. It turned out to be an enormously hot ticket event. And people at the UN told us they'd never seen an event there where so many of the UN staff wanted to sit in the room and be there. So the room only held a thousand and it was packed and then they had to watch over rooms. And these were people who had no functional uh, requirement to be there. It isn't, but it, for them, it wasn't just one more UN meeting. It was a meeting about something that was uh, Im- important and interesting. And so we kept watching how many people were reading the report. It, it's, it's free, so uh, it's equally accessible in some sense to anybody who can get on a computer. Um, but it's now over a million people have read the first report, and it isn't just a, uh, a novelty effect because the second report's been read by a million and a half, and the third report is already online to be above the second report. So I think there's purchases being gained um, among those who are either interested citizens or typically uh, people who are trying to improve their communities or think about uh, policies in their country. I'm going to leave it on that optimistic note. John, great to have you here. My pleasure. And that was Professor John Helliwell, one of the editors of the World Happiness Report, which we've linked to on our site at scienceforthepeople.ca. Stay tuned for more Science for the People after these messages. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm joined now by Michael Booth, an award-winning, best-selling author of five works of nonfiction, as well as a journalist, broadcaster, and speaker. He's here to talk about his newest book, The Almost Nearly Perfect People, Behind the Myth of the Scandinavian Utopia. Welcome, Michael. Hi, hello, how are you? Very well. Thank you for being here. And now the, the title of your book, Michael, The Almost Nearly Perfect People. We do think that about the Nordic countries, don't we? That they're almost perfect. Yeah, and in many ways they are. You know, I, I, that cover, I'm, I'm quite pleased with the title because it kind of covers me. I, I'm very critical within the book of these Nordic utopias, these supposed utopias. So whenever people come back at me and say, oh, stop, you know, slagging off Denmark and so on, I say, well, you know, look at the title of the book. That's kind of what I really feel about this, this part of the world. You are almost nearly perfect. You chop all of these uh, quality of living, happiness, uh, transparency, you know, all of these educational uh, world rankings. So they are very, very close to perfect. Well, and they, they also routinely dominate the, the top spots in the World Happiness Report. And actually, according to your book, almost every other global quality of life measure. Yeah, just about everyone. From from best cities in the world to live in. I write for a magazine called Monocle, which has this uh, yearly survey, and Copenhagen has topped that four times. Uh, education, best education systems in the world in Finland, uh, the richest people in the world, the Norwegians per capita, uh, the most literate people in the world, the Icelanders. I could go on and on and on. So uh, the interesting thing is that they have tons of positive name recognition, but that is about it. Most people don't know uh, much about any of the countries beyond that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very much a case of, you know, uh, north of the wall, really. People don't have even... 
the kind of the basic knowledge of ge- geography of the region, let alone the differences between the Danes and the Swedes, or what the Swedes think about the Finns and how the Icelanders fit into this kind of weird dysfunctional family. And that's that's the, the the initial impetus of the book really was just to explain to Brits and Americans who these people are. We we hear so much about them, but we tend to lump, lump them together as Scandinavians. You know, I mean, I'm sure you, Desiree, you know the difference between Scandinavia and Nordic, but I didn't until I started researching the book. So what is the difference then? Tell our audience. Oh, well, it's easy to remember. Scandinavians, they're the old Viking tribes, the Swedes, the Norwegians and the Danes. Nordic is a term which refers more broadly and includes Finland and Iceland, although Finland kind of opts in or out of Scandinavia depending on its mood. Sometimes they think of themselves as European. Sometimes they have sided historically with the Russians, uh, but often they'll consider themselves Scandinavian. The Icelanders, they are kind of, in a way, uber-Scandinavians. They were the ones who left Norway about a thousand years ago, the, the kind of mavericks who left Norway. But they're, they're ha- halfway towards America, both literally, North America, both literally and, and kind of spiritually. Well, let's, let's try and help fill in some of those gaps in, in people's understanding of this. Uh, starting with Denmark, which uh, incidentally took third place on the 2015 Happiness Report. So what makes Denmark so great? Yeah, they did drop recently, and I, I wasn't surprised by that. I don't want to sound like a wise-ass after the event, but I was kind of expecting that, that their economic fortunes have, have uh, wobbled in the last few years, as everyone's has. Uh, Denmark, up until then, have, have regularly topped the world happiness reports. And I, I have a problem with this word happiness. I, I think a much better word to describe the Danes is content. They're content with their lives. They have generally quite low expectations. You know, if they're asked at the, at the beginning of the year what they expect from the coming year, their expectations are pretty low. So when, when you ask them at the end of the year, have they fulfilled those expectations? They're pretty happy. Now, you know, why are they happy? They don't work very much. They work fewer hours than just about anyone else in the world. They are still relatively rich. Uh, you know, they're, they're pretty sexy. They've got a great sense of humor. Um, you know, there's a lot to be happy about. There are no earthquakes. There are no poisonous creatures. You know, until recently, there was very little uh, terrorist threat. Uh, you know, things function. Uh, they have a fantastic welfare safety net, although, again, that's shrinking somewhat. So, you know, I, I live here, I joke I live here almost of my own free will. My wife is Danish. But, but you know, I like living here. I love living here. Uh, there's a lot to be happy about. Well, and they are very egalitarian. Yeah, I think that's the foundation, you're right, of of the success of all of these five countries is the small gap between the rich and the poor. Now, that, that gap does happen to be widening, but still, from a global perspective, these are the most equal people on Earth. I think together with, you know, the Canadians, the New Zealanders and the Japanese, they're always in there as well, maybe the Dutch, but... Sweden and Denmark in particular have that smallest gap. In fact, it's kind of ingrained in their, their psyche back from the, the, the 19th century that no one should have too much and no one should have too little. And there are many, many forces at work in the society to keep that, uh, to maintain that situation, both political, economic and social. Well, and they have a very high level of trust in, in each other and in their government. Yeah, absolutely. Among the highest, again, there they are at the top of the, the, the world rankings, the most trustworthy and trusting people in the world. And as you say, that includes, you know, and it's astonishing for, for an Englishman and probably astonishing for, for North Americans as well. They trust their politicians, despite uh, all the evidence to the contrary. But the reason for that trust, I think, is, is there's a large levels of devolution in all of these countries. So people get a sense on a local level and a regional level that they can affect their lives, that they can be involved in the decisions that affect their lives. And uh, happiness researchers tell us that's very important to have not just that personal autonomy, but a sense that you're kind of connected to the t- decisions in your society and the political decisions as well. 
Well, you you outlined sort of two arguments in the book that that the source of all that wonderfulness stems from the country's economic equality, or that they've always been trusting and socially cohesive, I guess, and and that's what allowed them to build a welfare state. Yeah, it's a, it's a classic chicken and egg. You know, did, do they start to share their stuff because they trusted each other, or do they trust each other because they share their stuff? And I don't think anyone's really gotten to the bottom of that. There, there is a kind of school of thought up here, tends towards the right-wing political spectrum, that it's almost genetic that you can trace it back to the Vikings, that they trusted each other, that they shared, they had these egalitarian societies. I think that's absolute nonsense, actually. Uh, so why should the Scandinavians have inherited or maintained certain aspects of Viking society and, you know, stopped with the rape and pillage and, and so forth? You know, it, it just doesn't ring true to me. So I think, wow, it's a lot. That's a, it's a big discussion. Why are they the way they are today? And it really starts with explaining who these people are, who the Swedes are, who the Danes are, and the Norwegians, because they are extremely different. And that's, again, kind of why I wrote the book. You can't really lump them together. You can't give a root cause for why they're all so successful because they're successful in different ways and for different reasons and most of them tend to be historical going back maybe 100 to 200 years. Well, and and you go over a number of theories in the book, uh, but but maybe let's look at this. What do we not know about Denmark that we should? <laughs> well, um, I think people would be rather shocked, appalled, surprised by the level of social conformity in Denmark. I think North Americans might struggle with that aspect of society. Uh, the fact that, you, you know, success is a little bit of a dirty word. Elitism, or to be elite, or to strive, or to be ambitious openly, is, tends to be frowned upon. Um, boastfulness, or telling people about your success, whether it be in exams, or how much you earned last year, or promotions, it doesn't tend to be viewed very uh, positively. Uh, neither do, you know, fancy cars, fancy clothes, that kind of stuff. There are, there are quite rigid social rules, unspoken, but everyone who's born here and brought up here knows how to behave. And it, and it can be quite stifling for foreigners to come and experience and quite perplexing. I've been here many years, and the longer I'm here, the more I realize how very different Danes and Swedes and Norwegians are from, from Brits and North Americans. So but there, there are some of the things that you, you only really experience. You don't experience them on a nice long weekend in Copenhagen, which I recommend everyone does, by the way. It's a fantastic city. But you do experience them if you come here. And, and then there are the other things, that the extraordinary cost of living here, the extraordinary high taxes, um, highest taxes in the world in Denmark, for example. You know, they're, 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 they're <laughs> I think a lot of people would struggle with them. And many politicians in North America often cite Scandinavia as, you know, we should be more like Scandinavia. I think Joseph Stieglitz, the Nobel Prize winning economist, came out with that kind of line last week. I, I saw an interview with him. But to achieve Denmark, as Francis Fukuyama put it, to, to get to be like these countries, I, I think there's some bitter, bitter pills that North Americans and Brits would struggle to swallow in terms of giving up certain freedoms, freedoms of expression, and in giving up an awful lot of their, their income. Well, that's that's interesting. You mentioned the high tax rates, but it seems like that that the folks who live there are are quite happy to pay those. They've uh, they've the politicians have tried to raise them repeatedly, and nobody votes for those. <laughs> That's right. I mean, there is increasing discussion about this. And again, there's an interesting difference between the countries. You know, Sweden did reduce its taxes uh, about 15 years ago after they had their own little banking wobble and they reformed their welfare state and they reduced taxes quite significantly. Denmark still is right up there. And you're right, there's very little political will to make much difference. There, there are uh, tax parties who want to reduce it, you know, a fraction. 
But uh, there's kind of a simple reason for that, and that is that the majority of people in Denmark uh, do well out of the transaction. They give up half of their income, but they get so many benefits, especially families, especially middle-income people, the, the middle. You know, if, if you're in the middle, these are great countries to live in. And not to mention the fact that roughly, I think, a third, 40% of the adult workforce works in the public sector. So they're hardly going to vote to reduce the public sector. And we have an election here in Denmark on Thursday, general election. And um, there are very few parties who are talking about reducing the public sector dramatically. They just want to keep the growth at 0%. Now, bearing in mind it's the biggest public sector per capita in the world, that's quite extraordinary. And they have the highest taxes in the world. No one wants to bring the taxes down because politically, it's just there's no, no great will behind that. This is very different than North America. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. This is Science for the People, and I'm talking to Michael Booth, author of The Almost Nearly Perfect People, Behind the Myth of the Scandinavian Utopia. Now, I do want to mention Iceland. Uh, this is somewhere that I've always wanted to visit, and I found out potentially too much about it in your book. Uh, Iceland <laughs> was, uh, it's the number two spot on the 2015 Happiness Report. So why are Icelanders so almost nearly perfect? What's it, what's well, it, it like it, there? It, it's good we mention them, because they get awfully crossed if you don't mention them. Um, I, I wrote a, a quite kind of tongue-in-cheek but critical article in a newspaper, The Guardian, last year, and the main complaint from Iceland was that I didn't write more about them. <laughs> and I, I tried to point out, look, there are only 300,000 of you. Uh, per capita, you've got a lot of coverage in my piece and a lot more than you deserve in the book. But, you know, that the, the Danes like to say the Icelanders walk in shoes that are too big for them and keep tripping over their shoelaces. They, they have, um, let's say, an overinflated sense of their own worth in the world and their position in the world. But, you know, hats off to them. They did precipitate a global economic crisis all by themselves Absolutely. back in 2008. You know, they did a good job there. And, and in all fairness, they rebounded from that magnificently. They've, they've actually put some bankers in prison, you know, and they've reformed a bit and they've sort, they're sort of they, they're getting their house in order. They may still owe a few people a few billion uh, dollars, but they're, they're, they're doing their best. But Iceland, you know, in all seriousness, should they be second happiest people in the world? When you're looking at such a tiny sample as 300,000 people, I think they, you know, they almost don't qualify as a country. I hope they're in Iceland and listening to this, but they're like a boutique country, aren't they? They're not really, I don't, I don't think they're particularly representative. They don't, you know, it doesn't take much to skew the figures, basically. But in their favor, they are, as I said earlier, they're extremely literate. I think they read more books than anybody else in the world. Um, they have clung to this extremely uninhabitable rock in the middle of the North Atlantic for a thousand years. So again, you know, well, well done for that. And I do say everyone once in their life should go to Iceland because it is the most spectacular landscape I've ever seen on Earth. Uh, and when you go there and you see the forces of nature at work on that island, uh, the glaciers, the, the geysers, the, you know, the hot springs, you can kind of understand why Icelanders are how they are, which if you ask the Danes, they're, they're, they're reckless, they take risks, um, they live for today. Uh, they're very, very creative. They all have two or three different jobs. They're multitaskers, extraordinary multitaskers. So, you know, the prime minister might also be a, a chiropractor and a poet. And then you'll see someone driving a taxi one day and they might be a policeman the next. So, uh, you know, I have huge admiration for the Icelanders. I love their landscape, but they, they occasionally let their ambitions run away with them, I think. That's and it. You know, that's, it's, that's the interesting part to me is what what is with the ambition in Iceland? Because that is very un-Nordic in many ways, according to your book. Well, yeah, I'm not sure if it's ambition is just kind of a recklessness and a, a, a propensity to take risks. But 
I do talk in my book about a theory uh, why they got themselves into this particular economic mess in 2007 and 8, or really the first part of the century. I, I'm afraid so. I think it might be the American influence. Now, you know, they had a, they've had a large American presence in terms of the U.S. air base since World War II on Iceland, and it's still there. And when you think we have such a small population of people, even an influx of a couple of thousand or 3,000 U.S. airmen is going to, you know, is going to um, change things up, let's say. And Iceland became a kind of darling of the uh, of the neoliberals, the the, the kind of uh, freedmen of this world who wanted more freedom in, in economic transactions and so forth. And they, they got bitten by that bug, um, hence the banking deregulation, hence the lending to themselves and, you know, buying football clubs in the UK and department stores. They went on an incredible spending spree, all based on, on hot air. And that, that has certainly, for me, echoes with the things that have happened in, in the United States in the last 10 years as well. So I think there's quite a strong American influence in, the, in terms of the way they view the world economically. I'm not blaming the Americans, but I think that's, I think something went a bit awry there. It's certainly, it's, it, you're right. It's, it wasn't a very. It, 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 it contrasts dramatically, for example, with how Norway has approached its own wealth, its oil wealth that it's had uh, reaped over the last 40 years or so. You know, they've stored it away. They've been very careful about reduce, you know, putting a cap on spending of their huge oil wealth. Whereas the, the Icelanders, they were they were borrowing from the Swiss. They were borrowing in yen to buy, you know, cars, and they went crazy. And it wasn't just bankers; it was ordinary, you know, ordinary working Icelanders. Very un-Scandinavian, very different kind of approach to hoarding what you have and parsimony and that whole Lutheran ethos. But their the, the fact that they let their banking industry fail um, has worked out well for them. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, one wonders why Greece doesn't do something similar. I think Greece is trying to do something similar. I'm, I'm no economist, so I, I, I have no idea. But yeah, they, they, I don't know how they got away with it, to be honest. But <laughs> again, you know, well done to them. Well, let's let's talk about Norway. Uh, that's where I'd love to go next. Now, this Norway is interesting. They they share um, all of the egalitarian uh, sort of characteristics of the other Nordic countries. Uh, they are the most gender equal country in the world, uh, the second wealthiest country in the world. They have a nationalized oil industry that, by all accounts, is doing fantastic. Uh, but there is a darker side to Norway. So, just how right wing and racist are they? I guess. Is well, my I mean, I always get into so much trouble about this because I'm only, you know, I'm, I'm talking about this from my point of view, from yes. what I hear, from what I see. I, you know, I don't live in Norway, but there, there is, there is something about Norwegians. <laughs> they are just that little bit more insular. I hesitate to use the word racist, but the, you know, uh, events of recent years have sadly. Uh, suggested that there is a kind of simmering right-wing and predominantly anti-Islamic uh, sentiment in Norway, but that of course exists across Europe. It's also here in Denmark and also in Sweden. Um, in terms of the, the, the attack of Anna Sparing Breivik in uh, 2011, I think we can, in a sense, discount that as, as the, the act of a totally crazy man. Right? They, they, uh, I mean, the, the, the psychologist in Norway claimed he wasn't crazy, and I can understand why that would be interesting or advantageous for them to say, but I think everyone else can look at, see what he did, and see that was an insane man. But Norwegians, um, they're, they're actually a young country in the sense that they really kind of got their independence in the early 20th century after being ruled first by Denmark and then by Sweden. So you need to look upon them as a, as a country still, in a sense, trying to find or protect the identity that they have. Um, that, ten, that, that tends towards a, uh, they have national romantic leanings, let's put it that way. Um, 
I like to describe it as in the early 20th century, Sweden went for modernism all out, you know, at the expense of a lot of their traditional values and traditional culture. They saw only the future. They wanted to clear the deck, so to speak. Norway, you know, woke up out of this uh, colonial past and said, well, who are we? What do we want to be? And they kind of look back to some traditions, some rural traditions. And they have a much stronger connection with their landscape. And all of this plays into a perception, a common perception in the region that they are a little bit right wing. Yeah. <laughs> Your hesitancy is adorable. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been burnt so many times. With oh, this. I'm so sorry. Uh, but, I, I'm, I'm persona non gratis in Oslo these days. But I find this fascinating because I... It's interesting because it's a, it's a country with some rather intense social cohesion and they suddenly became rich. So does that equal this sort of xenophobic, I, I guess, they, I, they almost seem like they don't need the rest of the world. They're very insular. Yeah, in that sense, yes. They, they, but but uh, actually, they do need foreign workers very much because this wealth has, I'm going to be frank about this, the wealth has made them lazy. The Norwegians have taken their foot off the gas. And you can see this in the number of holidays they take, the sick leave they take, the fact that all the graduates want to be something in the media. Can you imagine anything worse to do these? But, you know, this, this whole... Um, so so what, what happens is they bus in teenagers from Sweden to work in their service industry. You can't go to a restaurant in Oslo without being served by a Swede or into a shop. They are uh, many, many thousands of Filipinos working in their fish processing and, and other uh, what we used to call third world immigrants or non-Western immigrants uh, doing the kind of jobs Norwegians don't want to do anymore. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, you could argue their wealth has kind of corrupted them. I don't think it's made them more insular, but certainly they don't need tourists. They don't need foreign money or foreign investment. They've got all that covered, thank you very much. But they do need foreign labor. And that, of course, then creates issues of integration, which they're struggling with, as all the Nordic countries are. But the interesting thing is, since I wrote the book, the oil price has tanked, if you'll excuse the, the pun. And I wouldn't say that Norwegians are panicking, but Statoil, the state uh, oil company you mentioned earlier, is making mass redundancy, tens of thousands of people. They're pulling back investments in uh, extracting oil from the trickier places where they used to be good at it. And they're not worried yet, but there, there's a slight, you know, nervous. There, there are some clenched buttocks, <laughs> put it that way in terms of the Norwegian economy right now, because they've become uh, it's all, all the eggs in one basket kind of economy now. You're listening to Science for the People, and I'm talking to Michael Booth, author of The Almost Nearly Perfect People. Uh, now, unfortunately, you do. We're we're definitely doing an overview because you you include so much detail in in this book, and it's fantastic. Um, but we don't actually have time to talk about Finland, which I I actually mm, feel a no. bit. I know I feel a bit guilty about that because, according to the book, you should. I love the Finns. They're so impressive. But okay, it's your program. Me, you get to <laughs> Okay, give me because I I want to leave enough time to talk about Sweden. Um, yeah. But okay, give me give me like two minutes on Finland. Well, well, it's just, just the, the, the history. I didn't really know much about the history of Finland. I knew they had a bit of a fight with the Russians, you know, and uh, were, pretty, were, were famed for their sisu, their kind of, um, kind of machismo and their fight, their redoubtable spirit. But when I looked into the history of Finland for the last 150 years, it's just been awful for those poor guys. They've really struggled and they haven't complained about it. You know, Finns, Finns aren't ones for self-promotion or for complaining. They just kind of get on with stuff and 
They have a very dry sense of humor, which I really love. When I was up there researching the book, I told uh, I was interviewing a Finnish, Finnish film director. I said, the book's going to be called The Almost Nearly Perfect People. And he, he looked at me literally with his vodka halfway <laughs> to his mouth and said, what do you mean almost? And I just thought, that's, that's so, so perfect. They, 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 they don't boast, and that's causing them some problems at the moment in, in terms of marketing their products worldwide. They're not very good at that. They're, they hide their light under a bushel, but I, I like that kind of modesty. And when you go to Helsinki, you wouldn't feel you're, you're on the edge of the civilized world. You know, you've got Russia just over the border. They held the Russian bear at bay, you know, the, the entire Cold War, but with very little help from the Swedes. They fought valiantly during World War II to, you know, during the cold, uh, the winter war. Uh, when they were vastly outnumbered by the, the Soviet forces. Yes, they did fight on the side of the Nazis just a little bit, which is, is not, they're not terribly proud of. But um, generally, they're just that, that redoubtable spirit of the Finns. I, I, I like them. I think they're, they're an incredible bunch of people. Well, and they're so much more, for lack of a better term, macho <laughs> than the rest of the Nordic yes, countries. Yes, macho. And that, that does express itself in some negative aspects. They, they have a very high homicide rate. They have a very high uh, ownership of guns. Um, they get very, very, very drunk on a Friday night and a Saturday night. Uh, and get a bit fighty with, with some alcohol in them. Who doesn't? But the things tend to be a bit more than the rest of us. So it does manifest itself in some slightly negative aspects as well. Well, and so to contrast that, let's move to Sweden. Uh, what what are the Swedes like as a people? What what are their typical characteristics to totally stereotype well, an entire country? Yeah, far be it from me to, to make <laughs> sweeping generalizations about eight and a half million people, but that, it is kind of fun to do that. And, you know, with, I always argue if you're going to make sweeping stereotypical generalizations about entire nations, the Scandinavian tribes are pretty fair targets because they are they do tend to be quite homogenous and, and they, they do, you know, time and again in my discussions and, you know, uh, online articles, they do tend to conform to their, their cliches and their stereotypes and the Swedes always step up, step up to the plate and they're a little bit stiff and a little bit pedantic and a little bit humorless and a little bit boring, I have to admit. Um, they always, you know, they, 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 they're used to hearing trash talk from everyone who lives around them. Everyone kind of hates the Swedes. I think there's one big surprise for me when I first moved here. Get, you know, get a couple of beers and a Dane, and it will all, they'll, it'll all come out, you know, how the, the Swedes have been bullying them for hundreds of years and how boring the Swedes are, and, you know, how they're going to take back southern Sweden one day. And, you know, and the Finns, they, there's some deep abiding resentment towards the, the Swedes because of what they see as the, the lack of support during various conflicts with, with the Russians and so on. Uh, the Norwegians, also an old colonial ruler. And, and generally, for most of the, the last two, three hundred years, the Swedes have been you know, the head boy, the goody-goody, the, you know, the, the big brother who did a Peter Perfect. And that can get a bit grating after a while. They won all the wars. They basically held the Danes head down the toilet and flushed a few times. They took away all the riches that, you know, the, and they're still so aggravatingly successful and beautiful and sexy. And they, you know, they make the best music and they, they have this huge manufacturing industry, which none of their neighbors have. Uh, they're, they're just, they're just so damn successful. I think that's why they get up everyone's nose. Well, and they're, they're even, I would, I guess I would say more, they're more fiercely egalitarian than, than the other countries as well. Yeah, yeah, and that goes for gender equality especially. I know you mentioned that Norway was number one. I'm surprised at that because Sweden, for example, is is working towards having gender-neutral uh, 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 pronouns, you know, instead of him or her, kind of it, <laughs> you know. So they're, 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 and they're, they're kind of um, working very hard in a way to, to neutralize the gender gap. 
that's very good. Fantastic to have women in work and, and, that, and but so is forth. That, but as is that due to egalitarianism or do they just really dislike anything that doesn't conform? This is almost another attempt to just make everything the same. Oh, no, I think it's all part of this um, impetus towards being modern. And they see gender equality as something modern. So everything must be geared, and I, and I agree to a certain extent, you know, to, towards bringing equality to the genders, as well as economic equality, uh, uh, you know. So I think they see it as, as part of the big, grand Swedish modern experiment. But the downside is, you know, children are separated from their mothers at an early age. It's kind of frowned upon to stay home with your child for too long. Of course, one of the things Sweden's famous for around the world is that mothers and fathers share parental leave when the, when the child is born for a year. They have uh, uh, paid leave to look after the child, and, that, and the, the father must take time. And that's, that's absolutely fantastic, speaking as a father of two kids. We have something similar here in Denmark. So, um, again, that's all part of this, this modern uh, society that they've been building for the last 80, 100 years. Can we go back to the boring part? Because I, I actually, I heard a, um, one of the things that you wrote about, I found fascinating. The, there is a theory, um, as to why, uh, there is this, uh, especially Swedish, but, but Nordic, uh, sort of resistance to small talk. What, can you talk about that theory? High context? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a fascinating thing. Not my theory. Uh, but, but there's a, there is a sense that countries can be uh, divided according to high context or low context. And, all that means is that the people who live in the country have so much in common that they don't need to talk. They don't need the small talk. So into that would be very homogenous countries like the Nordic countries or Japan. So they don't really have need for that reassurance of constant small talk to, to, so that people can figure out what are you thinking, what, what's your actual intention here in this conversation. Whereas if you go to a multicultural city like London, you know, we do nothing but small talk. It's just chatter, chatter, chatter. So it seems to me, from my experience, the further north you go, the less people talk and the more comfortable people are with silence. And especially the Finns, they, you know, it's difficult to get a word out of a Finn. They, they find socializing, I think, quite challenging. Or, or rather, people who socialize with Finns find, find them quite challenging because they would really rather just be sitting in their saunas in silence. And you get the similar kind of thing in, in Sweden. In, in my book, I have a chapter where I try and behave as unswedishly as possible in Stockholm for a day. So, I'll try, I'll try and chat up people on park benches or get into lifts with them and, and you know, it's, hi, how are you doing? What are you, how are you already on holiday? That kind of small talk. And they recoil. They don't like it. They, they, um, it was quite interesting actually that they don't do small talk, especially with strangers. And they will do anything to avoid getting in a lift with a stranger. It, it probably makes me a rather awful person, but I laughed a lot at that bit. I was, I was cringing <laughs> inwardly for them. So well, you, you actually say yourself in the book that you consider Sweden a benign totality. Totalitarian state. Yeah, that is that is tongue in cheek, and I've also been criticised for that. And people say, "Don't you know <laughs> what totalitarian means?" <laughs> no, no, you won't. <laughs> in a sense, yes, yes. Uh, you know, I I, I I stand by everything I say in the book. I, you know, you you could make an argument for Sweden, particularly in the sixties and seventies, as being a totalitarian totalitarian state. They had one party ruled that country pretty much all the time for the last fifty years, with a couple of exceptions. They also infiltrated, if you like, they also let's say shaped the judiciary, they shaped academe, they shaped the media. So all of the voices, all of the discourse in Sweden was very much conforming to that, and it was a social democratic party, of course. So, uh, you know, and I'm not the only one to describe them as benign totalitarians. I, I thought I'd come up with that, idea, that, that description. I was very proud of myself, but it goes back, back way back to the 70s. So, you know, no, people weren't queuing for potatoes like they used to in, in the Soviet Union, but they did have their choices limited into, in terms of how they wanted to live your life. 
And the best example I can give of this, uh, as someone who likes a drink or two, are the state monopoly shops that sell alcohol. You can only buy alcohol between the hours of, I think, 10 and 5 weekdays and Saturdays from state-run alcohol monopoly shops. I find that pretty astonishing. Um, and it's just one example, really, about how the government has much, much more control in the everyday lives of Swedish citizens. The kind of levels of control which, uh, you know, would provoke riots, revolutions in North America. I mean, people, there have been revolutions about less in, in the United States, for example. But And that's what I think I find so interesting, that there's definitely this sense across uh, all of the Nordic countries that people would willingly give up um, freedom, some sense of freedom, in order to have the state provide services, which is... Yeah, it's a, yeah you're right. It's a, it's, a, it's a payoff. You know, you, you accept limits and compromises in terms of maybe freedoms or opportunities or you know the chance to lead maybe an extraordinary life or a very different life or an unconventional life you, you kind of accept that's not going to happen in return for fantastic levels of security and safety now that's what's great about these countries why i love living here because i'm a, a hypochondriac and i'm a, a neurotic and you know it's, it's a perfect place for me to live i have two kids there are no better places on earth i think to raise children in the Scandinavian countries. Um, so, you know, it's a quid pro quo. You, you, you give some things up and you know that you're going to be safe and secure. Now, as soon as that security and safety uh, declines or and it's based on the equality, which is also declining, then things start to look wobbly. And of course, if there isn't the money there to, to fund it, things start to wobble again. And uh, we've seen with the oil price in Norway, that's wobbling, that's shaking. They're starting to worry in Denmark. Actually, the, the Danish kind of uh, social welfare system has also been supported by oil for the last 20 years. They have North Sea oil, not quite at the same levels as Norway, but it's certainly helped pay for this amazing welfare state they have here. That's not there anymore. The oil income isn't there anymore. Not manufacturing so much in Denmark like they are in Sweden. They don't have the free uh, hydroelectric energy sources that they have in, in in Sweden and Norway. So there are there are threats. There are threats. There are challenges that these all of these countries have to face within the next ten years. And I haven't even started about the aging populations. The Swedes have one of the most uh, aged demographics in the world. They're almost like the, the Japanese of Europe, for example. So now. What can we take from this? Because it is, you know, we are we are not collectivists as much as the Nordic countries. So what can we steal? What should we learn? Yeah, that's the interesting question. I mean, we can't turn Scandinavian, and that's not going to happen. I often get asked this. I was asked when, you know, when Scotland was having the, the uh, independence discussion a couple of years or so ago. No, you're not going to become Scandinavian overnight. But there are so many lessons to learn from the Scandinavians, really just about how to live your life. Try not to work so hard, for example. I know that's an easy thing to say. Maybe perhaps easier, join a club, join an association, take up some kind of hobby with, with other people. You know, the, the Danes belong to more clubs and associations and per capita than anyone else in the world. And I'm convinced that really contributes to the sense of social cohesion in the society. And all these, you know, the happiness researchers tell us that that kind of human social contact is vital for happiness. So if it's happiness you're after, that kind of plateaus after a certain income level. And then these kind of things become much, much more important. So the Danes, you know, they're not the happiest people by accident. They are extremely relaxed. They are a very laid back bunch of people. Not a lot, you know, gets the Dane riled. Maybe if their beer's just out of reach or something, then they might get a bit upset. But they, they, they are genuinely very, very relaxed. Uh, and I think that's something we can learn from them. Uh, uh, this social cohesion is fantastic. Uh, equality, gender equality, blah, blah, blah. But really, when it comes down to it, take a chill pill. 
fascinating book, sir. Thank you very much, Michael. For- no, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And that was Michael Booth, author of The Almost Nearly Perfect People, Behind the Myth of the Scandinavian Utopia. And we've linked to him on our site at scienceforthepeople.ca. Before we sign off today, I just wanted to give a shout out to a new community radio station that's added Science for the People to their schedule. If you live in the Sudbury, Ontario area, you can now find us on your local airwaves by tuning into CKLU 96.7 FM every Thursday at 1 p.m. If you're looking for where Science for the People might air near you, you can find a full list of our broadcasting stations on our website, which is scienceforthepeople.ca. And if you're a new listener from Sudbury or elsewhere, and you want more science for the people right now, because you can't wait a whole week, I respect that, uh, you can find the back catalog of episodes on our website on iTunes, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, or almost anywhere else podcasts are made available. And if you love us, we would be grateful if you'd share your love by leaving a rating and a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.